all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome, one and all, to episode 169 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the former Metro Transit route episode of the SLS Cast to Kent, Kent, Washington. That's right, because it turns out that from September 28, 2002 through January 31, 2003, there was... Weekday service to Kent through the Seattle Metro Transit System. And that route number was 169. Yes, folks, and with that Internet Archive way back machine knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. What, what was I supposed to say something else? At uh, you usually have something <laughs> to contribute to the numbering scheme or something else wacky and oddball. Well, I am glad the Oscars are over. Me too. Did you did you catch any of them? Any any of the tidbits from the very entertaining Oscar? I did not. Um, I had to work all the way I worked all the way up until about 7:30 my time last night and then I came home from work changed clothes went up to the movie theater and was at the movie theater until like 12:30 or 12:40 cuz I watched back-to-back movies of The Witch and Gods of Egypt and then uh spent some time chatting on Mixler with uh the MMK gang and um Went to bed. Well, you know, the night could have been worse. You could have wasted three hours watch the Academy Awards. Now, I did see the thing on, on Reddit today where they showed Stacey Dash walk out on stage at the Oscars. And, like, nobody laughed. It was weird. And it's so funny, though. I mean, that was like Chris Rock went, like, ultra meta right there. Because... Stacy Dash is, um, I don't know. I, she she is seen nowadays as some uh, ultra conservative Republican Fox and Friends loving media nut, right? D lister, right? Has been of Hollywood. Sure, yeah. She was in a TV show, and, uh, Clueless, right? Well, she actually was in the movie Clueless as well. That was her culminating achievement. She was also in the film Moving with Richard Pryor. But, um, no, so she, she, but, and she's also was on Playboy. She was in Playboy or whatever. But what happened was, is, uh, she was pretty much considered benign up until 2012 when she no longer wanted to support Obama and decided to support Mitt Romney. And so, as has been the case lately in that regard, when people of color do that, they are not as popular as they once were, uh, regardless of how popular they were to begin with. So not also, so she just started doubling down, man. So she's like, oh, I'm voting for McCain. Oh, there should not be a Black History Month. Oh, there, you know, it's like all this kind of stuff that was going on. So when Chris Rock, you know, said, oh, so we're going to have this person be in charge of our, you know, multicultural committee for the Oscars. 
And then she walks out on stage and she's all like, (laughs) you know, see you next year for Black History Month. I was like, oh my God, that's so fucking meta. It's amazing. And like, nobody got it. I mean, it was crickets. There was like four people laughing in the audience because like they got the joke and everybody else was like, who is this person and why is she here? Well, you didn't. So if you didn't watch the full thing or, or leading up to that, it, it's like I was it was weird. I felt I felt uncomfortable watching it and I was laying on my couch watching it. It was just a little too much. And I think the actually, I, I give it to the audience like they were I mean, they laughed. They gave Chris Rock support. I just kind of think that was a one step a little too. What the fuck is going on? What the hell? <laughs> they kept bringing up the same. St- I don't know. It was just. It was. It was crazy. Well, maybe by the time that she came, because I don't know at what point in the, you know, in the show that she came out. So I only saw the one part, uh, and then heard about his joke regarding Jada Pinkett Smith. Um, those. And so those are the only two things that I really know about outside of, of course, you know, Leo winning, blah, blah, blah. Did you see the, uh, the little skit with Tracy Morgan as the Danish girl? No, did not. Okay, well, you got to watch that sometime. You, you need to just oh, look that up one, that was Tracy Morgan, the Danish girl. It's <laughs> the probably the funniest thing of the entire show, other than some goofy things that people said. But it was, I mean, I don't know. I understand that they were trying to... Bring, you know, talk about the issue, bring light to the issue of uh, race in Hollywood and diversity and whatnot. Uh, I did appreciate all the people that came up and said, hey, this industry needs to be diverse for everybody, not just for people of color, but for gays, lesbians, transgendered community, or I guess the LGBT community as well. It should be for everyone uh, should have the same opportunities and whatnot. So there was some of that going on too, which I definitely appreciated. And uh, I, I got a kick out of all the Australians from Mad Max who was going up there and having the time of their lives. Like I bet they were feeling they were ruling, ruling the night because they won. Did they six... get up there and do like Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi? Not quite, but a couple of them. No, I think no. it was it was two of the sound guys <laughs> came up, and you know they're from the brush. You know, like they, like they looked fine. It's just like they weren't like complete. Their outfits weren't completely pressed, and they walk up there with a you know didgeridoo and no, no, they they were having fun. <laughs> they were having fun. They were la- like they, one of the guys walked up and just yelled into the microphone because he was so excited, and you know, so like for I was happy for Mad Max. I thought it was great. Other than a couple of the awards, I felt pretty good about all of them. I was awfully pleased. I'm happy for Spotlight winning. And all that jazz. Well, somebody had to be outside <laughs> of the people who made Spotlight. I mean, yeah, it's a good, it's a good movie. It could have, mm-hmm. it could have been worse. Wasn't the best movie. It's not the best movie, but it could. Well, been well worse. apparently, it was. Well, <laughs> but you know, you and the people who made it, made it are the only people who think so. Well, I guess the people who voted for it, the Academy too. As you know, it's a conspiracy. All of you. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> But other than that, actually, there is something, though, that I did want to bring up that I meant to uh, talk about a couple weeks ago. So uh, we moved clo- uh, oh, to LAX. We moved to LAX, the airport. Nice. You're on Tarmac 8? Or- I do. I, I am on Tarmac 69 uh, because <laughs> if you got to choose, why not go for the goofy one? But there is, in the in the little neighborhood town here, 
Uh, the food court, maybe. Uh, well, there's this old uh, movie theater that's been around for uh, years. I think it opened in the 20s or 30s or or something like that. It was called, it's called the Old Town Music Hall. And in the 60s, uh, nobody. I think it, it was disbanded in, like in the 50s or whatever. And this guy, these two guys, bought the place in the mid 60s. Uh, they came across this old Wurlitzer pipe organ, like 250 pipe organ, something like that. But it's an old Wurlitzer organ uh, that an old the old Fox Theater somewhere in town. Uh, they were closing down, and they had uh, no need. Or I don't think they were closing down, but they had no need for the pipe organ because obviously the theater was using the pipe organ for silent films and there was no need for it in the 60s since it was full-blown talkies and uh, moving into color by that time also and so uh, these two guys bought that pipe organ from that fox theater moved it into the old town music hall and since 65 or 67 they redid the inside to make it look like an old-time silent movie theater they and uh, and so whenever you go to the theater now, they have shows. I think every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and they're all older movies that came out before 1960. So the majority of the movies that they show there are in black and white. Uh, but it's great because you go there and you sit down, and there's an organ performance. The guy who owns the place comes out and he plays this 250 piece organ, and it is absolutely amazing. And he plays it for a little while, and then he plays it along with a silent film. And a couple Saturdays ago, we went and they showed one of Harold Lloyd's little 15 minute silent films and he actually played it along with them and it's an experience that i cannot quite describe because it's amazing being able to see and experience somebody playing live with what you're watching on screen and and it, it all like synced up great and oh it was fantastic and so after the organ performance and then the organ being played along with the movie, I mean, this is a 250-piece organ, so they, he had, like, the car horns, the buggy uh, horns that had the drum kit that was hooked up to it. I mean, it was it was a whole shebang, the whole silent film shebang. There was an intermission, and then at the end of the intermission, or after the intermission, then you watch the main feature, and the main feature that night is the it was the Fred Astaire uh, 1935 comedy musical comedy called top hat uh, the one with ginger rogers as his female companion and it was just an absolutely wonderful experience and i bring that up because i know living in la i'm kind of lucky because we there are a couple silent movie theaters or uh or what used to be silent movie theaters that still play silent films and really this is the only one that i can think of i'm sure there might be some uh around la that actually shows silent movies and have a, uh, a, a a mighty Wurlitzer organ playing along with it. So if you have a chance to experience something like that, do experience it because it is well worth your time. It was ten bucks, ten bucks, and we got a one-hour pre-show with the organ, and then we got to watch the movie afterwards. So. It's something that everybody has to experience and check out. I don't know where you can check that out if you live in, like, Tulsa, Oklahoma, for example. But if you come across it sometime, do look into it. In Houston, I don't know if in Houston, if any of the, like, I'm sure there's got to be, like, a small town somewhere where they do silent movies and actually play. Even if it's just, like, a piano, you know, it's a lot of fun. But I know River Oaks doesn't, they don't do that, surprisingly. Nope. They don't.
So we've got some email to cover from last week's show that I neglected to check. So I apologize for someone in particular who did not get their email read. Who's going to get it email read now? Who's going to get it email read now? Jesus. Who's going to get their email read now? But first, a couple of followers on Twitter. Oh, yeah. You can follow us on Twitter if you want. At the SLS cast, of course. And if you want to send us an email and be ignored for a couple of weeks, like I always say, replies in six weeks or less. <laughs> you, too, can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. So let's see here. The uh, uh, the Twitter followers, we've got uh, another podcast following us, apparently. It's uh, Dat's Life. D-A-T-S is all caps there. Uh, that's at Dat's Life Podcast. So that's cool apparently a couple of guys named dave and tom they like to do it so that's cool for them thank you for following us guys and then we have they like to Charlie. they like to do what whenever you say they like to do it they just like to have a podcast it's not very specific fair enough dad's life is a podcast made up of best mates dave and tom that's it <laughs> i have no idea i i have not listened to and then we have charlie I don't know who Charlie is. He's a good-looking cat, though. He's got a little picture here. Uh, at Charlie Ske. Ski? S-K-E. Is he and, French? Uh, he, no, Charlie I Ski? I have no idea. Hey, no, it says San Diego, California. Well, there's might be a big and, and he's got French a nice population. quote from Ingmar Bergman here. It says, No art passes our conscience in the way film does and goes directly to our feelings, deep down into the dark rooms of our souls. That's deep, Ingmar man. Bergen. Hey, that's a really good quote. So, Charlie, thank you very much for following us, and I apologize for clearly butchering your last name. Um, and so, yeah, again, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can, at the SLS cast, so that's always fun. Yay, yay, yay. And, um, yeah, so let's see here. Now we have an actual email to get to, and of course, it's from the person who takes pity on our email box, Diana. So thanks again in advance for sending this to us says this is the subject documentaries so you can see just how old this was we should have really read this last week because she's going to be talking about oscar stuff uh hola muchachos after listening to your episode on docs i decided to seek them out and was delighted to find all three on netflix after tag team watching them all i have to say is it gave me a wider perspective on life in our country compared to what people in mexico and ukraine deal with in regards to gun violence they make us look like kids playing with toy guns strange that the media excuses them Anyways, not being a political podcast, let me just say thank you for reminding me to look at the wider world through viewing documentaries. So much to educate us in them. I'd like to see the Ukrainian film get the Oscar. The bravery and commitment of that filmmaker and all the protesters affected me deeply. Such strong will these people have. Even their grief is as solid and silent as granite. So thank you for broadening my worldview to remember that, quote, normal, unquote, comes in many forms depending on what culture one forms one's reality. Cheers, Diana. So, thank you for that. I'm sorry that your dreams were dashed and Amy won. So, yay, Tim. He's the man. He knows everything. So, um, and uh, maybe next year, Diana, maybe our dreams will be, will no longer be dreams. Don't let your memes be memes. And that, of course, <laughs> is the email. 
And without further ado, shall we go to the news, sir? The news. All right, folks, here we go. It's the news. First up for me, coming to us from NME.com. See what they did there? By way of Joe Gamp. Quentin Tarantino says he will never work with Disney. After Cinema Dispute, director claims Disney bosses forced famed L.A. theater to delay The Hateful Eight. Expanding a little bit here, legendary director Quentin Tarantino struck out at Disney following December 2015's dispute around the delayed showing of The Hateful Eight in an L.A. cinema. <clears throat> Let's see here. Uh, in a report by Deadline, uh, actually, let me just back up here. It says that apparently uh, the Arclight Cinema Dome in Los Angeles uh, was forced to show... Star Wars The Force Awakens for an additional week, um, which shoved um, Tarantino's 70mm Roadshow version of The Hateful Eight back. And he was very, very, very upset. He says, quote, They fucked me over and I made them a lot of money for Pulp Fiction, and that really is a bad way to treat a former employee who has worked very well for them. End quote. Um, and of course, he's referring to 1994's film production house, uh, Miramax, which Disney owned at the time of the film's release. Um, now, I, I thoroughly enjoy uh, Quentin Tarantino's work, and I definitely enjoy that also that he is 100% not afraid to speak his mind in virtually any given scenario. However, this is also the guy who said he was never going to make Hateful Eight because somebody leaked the script. So, And also, Whoopi Goldberg, way back in the day, about 1994-ish time period, also said she would never work with Disney again, and then she ended up working with Disney again. Robin Williams was like, you guys burned me with the Aladdin thing. I'm, you know, I'm not going to work with you guys. And then eventually they publicly apologized, and he was like, oh, wow, they actually do. And so he worked with them again. Now, what I'm getting at here is that if never say never is proof in the pudding, this is probably going to be one of those times. Um, what do you think, Tim? Will Tarantino stick to his guns? Or do you think somewhere down the line he's going to eat these words? Um, you know, I don't know about that. I would be pissed off too if I was him. Mainly, I, I can I, I can understand his sentiment only because I really want to see it at the Cinerama Dome. He made the movie to be shown at the Cinerama Dome. And I will only see the movie again at the Cinerama Dome. I mean, I didn't care for The Hateful Eight too, all that much, but I know it would be a different experience seeing it in the Cinerama Dome. Uh, I've talked a lot about the Cinerama Dome. It was built in the 60s for the film It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, which was shot in the Super Cinemascope. And uh, so you're looking at a screen that kind of wraps around you a little bit. It's a an awesome theater, rich in history, and that... Tarantino shot the movie for that theater. And there's not another theater like that in L.A. I mean, you go to the Cinerama Dome specifically to go see movies like that. Yeah, I mean, granted, 
Star Wars wasn't shot. And, and I think another thing that pisses him off is that Star Wars wasn't shot in the super wide film, nor was Deadpool. And yet all those movies are being shown there and not his because his movies aren't going to uh, have the biggest draw. Which, in fact, I think if if, it, if The Hateful Hate had a limited one-week run at the Cinerama Dome, I think people would be interested in seeing it and will actually go and see it. Even if it was only maybe one or two showings a day, not for the entire, not five showings a day, but just maybe one or two, that's it. I think it would make, an, uh, make plenty of money, but whatever. I feel for him a bit. Fair enough. What do you got there, sir? Two pieces of news... From io9.com, the first one pertaining to Roger Corman, the B-movie king, Death Race returns with the B-movie king, Roger Corman at the re- at the wheel. This is written by Jermaine Lucier, and it says this, Iconic genre filmmaker Roger Corman is known for a lot of things, but mainly giving many talented filmmakers and actors their first jobs as well as making hundreds of cheap B-movies and crazy exploitation films. Of his entire career, his most famous film may be the cult classic Death Race 2000, and now he's decided to remake it. Get ready for Roger Corman's Death Race 2050. Director G.J. Etchnerkamp is at the helm with Corman on board as producer. Much of the original 1975 film, which featured David Carradine and Sylvester Stallone, and is much more fun than the blah 2008 reboot, Death Race, Death Race 2050 will be kind of a battle royale slash cannonball run mashup. Here's the synopsis. In the not-too-distant future, America is controlled by an all-powerful corporate government that keeps the masses placated with violent virtual reality entertainment. The event of the year is the Death Race, where a motley assortment of drivers compete in a cross-country road race, scoring points for running down pedestrians and killing each other. The reigning champion and popular favorite is half-man, half-machine Frankenstein, but little does he know he's taken on a rebel spy as his co-pilot. Frankenstein will be played by Manu Bennett, Azog in the Hobbit trilogy, as well as Deathstroke on Arrow, and Clockwork Orange legend Malcolm McDowell will be the chairman. Or the chairman. The film started shooting earlier this month and is scheduled to be released direct-to-DVD and on-demand later this year, and it goes on from there. This article came out uh, February 18th, so more likely it has probably already finished (laughs) shooting by now since this is a Roger Corman movie and they like to shoot things in like two weeks. Probably not. The production is probably still going on, but... I find this kind of interesting. Uh, Not too sure how it turns out. Roger Corman, his company hasn't really put out a decent, worthwhile movie in a while. I mean, I don't know. We'll we'll see how it goes. It should be interesting. Next up, Stephen Cho's Crazy Mermaid Adventure just became China's all-time box office ruler. That's right. Biggest movie in China is a mermaid film by Stephen Cho. This is written by Charlie Jan Anders, and it says this, Sorry, Episode 7, the biggest box office smash in Chinese history is The Mermaid, the latest film from Stephen Cho of Shaolin Soccer. An environmentalist tale with a harsh message about humans exploiting the oceans and mistreating other life forms, The Mermaid has made an estimated $431 million in two weeks. Again, 
The Mermaid has made an estimated $431 million in just two weeks. In The Mermaid, a good-hearted mermaid named Sean, played by Yoon Lin, goes on a mission to seduce and then kill Lin Zuan, played by Chao Ding, a human industrialist who has been polluting and destroying the oceans, Her half-octopus uncle, with the awesome tentacles as seen in the trailer, is spurring her on, but of course, Sean and Lin Zuan fall in love. If you haven't even heard of The Mermaid, that's not too surprising. According to the New York Times, this film has gotten a very quiet release in the United States because Chow is... Or Cho is following his recent trend of directing without being out in front of the camera, and the distributor believed that American audiences aren't interested in a Stephen Cho film unless it has Stephen Chow's own antics front and center. That's too bad, because according to the Times, this is a darn fun movie. It says that The Mermaid is no ordinary fantastical rom-com, though, encompassing as it does weaponized sea urchins incredibly delicious roasted chickens, man-octopus, self-mutilation, and other comic oddities. The slapstick is incredible, but that's only one aspect of the movie's spectacular humor. The relentlessly absurdist scene in which Luzon tries to convince two police officers that he was kidnapped by a mermaid is probably the funniest thing that'll play on screen this year, and maybe next. End all quotes there. Uh, I do know that The Mermaid is playing in the San Diego, Los Angeles, California area. I'm pretty sure it might get a release in the Houston area. Matt, what do you think? Would you uh, go check this out at your local uh, Alamo Draft House, Or do you think uh, this is something that you wouldn't be interested in? Are you familiar with the work of Stephen Chow or Cho? No, not familiar. Did you see Kung Fu Hustle? I did. Yeah, he did Kung Fu Hustle. No, um, I I did not realize that that was him. Again, I'm not familiar with his name, but yeah, I would if if he made Kung Fu Hustle, I would totally watch that movie. Yeah, and he's hilarious. He was the main guy in Kung Fu Hustle as well, so you know he has that great comic timing, and uh, he's he's just a, a very fun actor to watch. I've seen him in a couple other things that he's done, and I think it could be something, if anything, interesting. What do you think about Death Race? Were you a fan of the original Death Race 2000 with Sly Stallone? I did not watch that. How about the so, newer one that came out in like 2008 with Jason Statham? Nope. Didn't watch that one either. Cool. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, moving along to ScreenCrush.com by way of Britt Hayes. Sam Raimi to predict the future with World War Three movie. That's probably a little much there. Anyway, uh, in addition to directing an upcoming remake of French drama A Prophet, Sam Raimi is lining up another directing project, and while it's not a horror film, it does have some unnerving aspects, depending on your point of view. Raimi will direct World War III based on George Friedman's best-selling non-fiction, yes, non-fiction book, The Next 100 Years. In the 2009 book, the renowned strategist and geopolitical forecaster predicts the future of our world based on existing intelligence and data. That future includes a new Cold War, increased geopolitical influence in Mexico, and new technologies that will change the way we live, communicate, and fight our wars. Um, now, they do have uh, a, a synopsis, and then they kind of... 
have a couple of other uh, paragraphs there, and you should definitely check that out to finish it up because it's a worthwhile read. Um, what I guess, Tim, I only have two questions for you on this, and then I want to jump to the next one real fast. Um, do you are you familiar with George Friedman and and or this particular project or anything like that? And what part do you think Bruce Campbell will play? I heard about this a couple days ago. I think it's great. I, I like the idea of... I mean, Sam Raimi is a great... Uh, was a genre director. I mean, you know he can do horror. You know he can do comedy. And you know he can do drama with uh, A Simple Plan. I don't know if you've seen that one or not. With Billy Bob Thornton and Bill Paxton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fantastic movie. So I'm game with literally anything Sam Raimi wants to do. I'll give it a shot. I mean, he knocked it out of the park with the Evil Dead TV show. So he has a lot of spunk in him. To, well, right, well right. actually, well, I shouldn't say spunk is kind of... <laughs> he, he may have had a vasectomy. We don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, what about uh, the second question? What, what part do you think Bruce Campbell would play in a movie like this? Um, President of the United States? some kind of four-star general kind of thing? Or you think he'd play like some random dude that just gets vaporized? You know, I don't know. I mean, he's kind of like Ron Perlman to Gilmero del Toro. So I, he could probably, I mean, he could very well be another badass type of character or, or a badass villain or something like that. I, I hope they don't do the president or general route because <laughs> shit like that's way you know overdone. We don't need another president character or another general character. So well, I mean, it's gonna have something. It's about World War Three. I mean, there's no way you don't get world leaders involved with World War Three, uh, unless they're the first to go. Oh, well, maybe, maybe. All right. So really quickly here, uh, Deadline.com. Ex studio worker pleads guilty in illegal uploading of the Revenant that cost Fox one million dollars. Um, so yeah, just. Um, Let's see here. This was, again, Deadline.com by way of David Robb. Uh, the article is very short, so just check it out if you're down. Um, the title says it all. I mean, I guess I'm glad that they got the guy, but, you know, because you, at the end of the day, piracy, Armady, we be stealing the movie on the internet. Um, but... Uh, and I guess my question is, how do they know it cost them a million dollars? And the movie's already made how many hundreds of millions of dollars? And are they going to make this guy pay um, the million? Just go to jail? What happens? Do they not? Do they not let him have a USB jump drive anymore? Uh, you know, is, does he lose cloud access? What do you think about this, Tim? Yeah, I mean, he he has to pay for it, man. I, I mean, pirating. It is not a good thing. I mean, The Revenant is one of those movies to where if you want to go see the movie, you're going to go see the movie. You need to go see the movie. I, I mean, it's not. It's kind of bullshit, you know. I don't. I don't know. It's. I. I think whatever. Whatever happens to him is just. I'm sure. More than likely, it's going to be money. I don't think they really offer jail time for this in particular. I mean, I, he's not going to have another entertainment job again. He might be a DJ at a strip club sometime. You don't know. 
Oh, well, that kind of entertainment job. <laughs> don't, don't judge him. Don't limit his options. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, uh, what, what do you think is just for something like that? Do you, do you have an idea or an, a theory? I don't of... know. Honestly, I mean, okay, look. I'm not going to sit here and say that piracy is a victimless crime. Okay, but at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, the 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 movie chain, uh, not the, I, I, the overall movie chain, doesn't seem to be suffering that much. Uh, that doesn't excuse it. That doesn't make it right. I'm not trying to justify it, but uh, you know, he shouldn't have done it. He got caught. I don't know where he's going to come up with a million dollars and whatever, but. So, uh, working at a movie studio and the department I'm in and all that stuff, I, I mean, I'll tell you, with a movie like The Revenant or other blockbusters or even movies that don't do as well, but yet they still get a lot of, like, pirated a lot, like, for, like, Black Mass, for example, you know, that movie got pirated a shit ton. And it didn't like make a ton of money at the box office. All that it's it's a it's a trickle down effect that is really a trickle down effect because I don't think a lot of people realize that it's all about the numbers and the revenue and especially oh, the yeah, numbers. Yeah. And I, I know. And again, yeah. And, and like I said, in no way, shape, or form am I trying to defend the practice or defend, but uh, or, or say that the guy was right or that piracy is a good thing. Not I, I would not do that. And and again, I mean, you know, it, it could theoretically. Uh, cost you your job one day, right? And we definitely don't want that to happen, you know. Um, but on the flip side, when you may, when you have movies like Empire Strikes Back, right, that have made something ungodly billions of dollars, but still haven't turned a profit based on the numbers, right? You know, so. And I'm not saying again, it's not the case every time. You know, obviously, don't. I'm not trying to, you know, fuel a fire or, or anything like that. Um, it just, it's not as, it's just sometimes in some ways, not necessarily in this way, because this guy was an asshat for uploading a movie that he knew he wasn't supposed to do. Um, it's just not as, it's not as simple as we would like it to be. I just got a tweet from Miranda at underscore your idea of a crappy <gasps> aim. You gave away your no. Delete that. You better bleep that shit, son. People don't listen we have to the gone news. 169 episodes without ever telling anybody your Twitter handle, <laughs> <laughs> and you just gave it away. Hey, I'm pretty. I'm feeling pretty sexy with my Twitter handles now. <laughs> I don't mind showing it off. But she. I'm sorry. <laughs> I cut you off. I didn't mean to. What? 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 What did she say? But sir? she said at blank 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 blank. Your idea of a crappy AM sounding, or, or your idea of crappy AM radio sounds a lot better than you led me to believe. I want my money back, Miranda. We're giving you your money back with this episode. With this crappy episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, as a matter of fact, we're going to give all our listeners a raise. We're going to give you a 100% raise. What, what, what's 100 times zero? That's right. <laughs> it's all about the numbers. Don't pirate us, please. Uh-oh. Uh, okay, so my last piece of news for this week uh, is brought to us by Sister Celluloid from SisterCelluloid.com. I was talking about this blog earlier today to somebody, and I kept saying Sister Cellulite. And 
but it's Sister's Celluloid. And it says this, The Academy Strikes Again, the 2016 Oscar Memorial Snubs. Uh, and last, and it says this, Last night, according to the official Academy Awards website, quote, The Oscars took time to honor the many talents we lost during the previous year, the lives they touched, and the art they made or made possible, end quote. Yes, but they never take quite enough time, do they? I mean, it's entirely up to them how many minutes they devote to the memorial reel versus, say, lame-ass production numbers or cringe-worthy canned banter. And somehow, while leaving out genuine artists, they found enough time to squeeze a bunch of publicists in there. And Kirk Kirkorian, destroyer of MGM, which is a bit like Chicago building a monument to Miss O'Leary's cow, so here we go again, kids, with our annual tradition, taking a moment to honor those who were shamefully left off the reel. This year, Oscar seemed especially eager to show his back half to those who toiled in classic film with snubs including Joan Leslie, Colleen Gray, Betsy Drake, Dickie Moore, George Cole, Jane Meadows, Nova Pilbeam, Betsy Palmer, and Setsuko Hara. But there was plenty of dissing to go around. And talk about ironic, Abe Vigoda, subject of a running joke about being dead when he was still alive, was left out of the year he actually left the earth. Here are the names that ran through my mind in the hours, as in the hours after Oscar ran the dagger through once again. Joan Leslie, James Best, James Meadows... Setsuko Hara, Dick Van Patten, Betsy Drake, Gunnar Hansen, Dicker, uh, Dickie Moore, Fred Thompson, Franco Interlingi, Colin Wheeland, Abe Vigoda, Tony Burton, Elizabeth Wilson, Wally Castle, Marty Inglis, Jeffrey Lewis, Marjorie Lord, Gracie or Grace Lee Whitney, Jack Larson, Nicholas Smith, George Cole, Patrick McNee, Ron Moody, oh Ron Moody, forgot about that one. Nigel Terry, Nova Pilbeam, Kevin Corcoran, Betsy Palmer, Al Molinaro, Jean Darling, Monica Lewis, Angus Scrim, Richard Dysert, Glenn Frey, songs and soundtracks for films including, he did the songs and soundtracks for films including Beverly Hills Cop and Thelma and Louise, uh, Wayne Rogers, Colleen Gray, Martin Minor, Gerald O'Laughlin, David Canary, Amanda Peterson, Gene Sachs, George Gaines, Jacques Rivette, and George Winslow. I apologize for rehashing a few of the names, but, oh, well. Oh, and it does mention, and they did indeed, of course, left out Uggy, who was the heart of the artist, which won five Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor, the little guy who Uggy is a dog, even attended the ceremony. Uh, you know, I agree for the most part. I think they could have, I mean, like, they honored David Bowie. Why not Abe Vigoda? Why not this damn dog who, you know, was an influence in the artist? You know, just a lot of these. Merino hair. Uh, oh, wait. Uh, did they? You know what? Yeah, they, they covered her in, at the actual Oscars. But, like, Tony Burton, for example. Holy shit. Uh, just all these great... Actors that have left the earth this past year, I think, definitely did deserve an ode 
at the Oscars. Matt, what do you think? Do you think this is important? Uh, do you think this is something that the Oscars should take into or should uh, should be more mindful of? Is being more inclusive when it comes into in memoriam segments and not just more of like a, a crowd pleaser? I think um, I, I think for the actual show, they should just stick to the crowd pleasers. Um, not because of I mean because they have to draw the line somewhere. They're already tight on time as it is. They have no way to predict with any real reliability what the acceptance speeches are going to be like or anything. I think, though, that in lieu of that, there should be a full in memoriam that does include everybody who had a true contribution, even if it was a smaller contribution, but something that is truly notable, even if it was just one work that was truly notable. Um, And they should be included the dog i i don't know but hey whatever uh and that should be included on the website and i think that should be done and maintained all year long so that's that's my two cents there you have it that's my news all right well here you go okay well i'm gonna go ahead and close the news there i had two other pieces but they will they will very easily wait till next week uh they are both about gods of egypt and since we haven't actually officially covered it yet Eh, we can push that till next week. Look forward to that Gods of Egypt talk for news next time. Uh, and that, I think, will then bring us to our first three squared in like a month. Are you ready for it, sir? Well, ready or not, here it comes, folks. It's three squared. <laughs> So this time on Three Squared, we are going to be talking about strange casting choices for real-life people. So these may or may not be full-on biopics, necessarily, though for the most part they will be. Um, But they are going to be real-life people in film that were portrayed by the most unlikeliest of actors and or actresses. So, yeah. And we're going to start with me. I've got three here, and they, for me, are in the order of least weird to most weird. So we're going to start with 2012's HBO movie, Game Change, which was about the uh, McCain-Palin situation back in 2008. And no, I'm not going to talk about Julianne Moore being cast as Sarah Palin. No, no, no going to talk about Ed Harris being cast as John McCain. Now, the thing about Ed Harris, uh he's a phenomenal actor and it's not that he it's not that he doesn't have the range or anything like that, but someone that prescient or uh, in the public consciousness at the time that the film was made in terms of public figure like John McCain you see how his mannerisms are. You know how he speaks and talks. And then you think about the way that Ed Harris carries himself just as a human being. Forget the actors and the, and the roles that he can portray. You're now trying to squeeze the power of Ed Harris into, you know, phenomenal cosmic acting powers. Itty bitty typecasting. 
right? So it just was like weird. The movie didn't do all that great in terms of uh, reviews. It was not, you know, terribly panned or anything, but it wasn't like some blockbuster hit either. Um, but yeah, and and the reason why is because not just the subject matter, but because the casting was a little wonky. I mean, Woody Harrelson was also cast in this movie. It's a lot of different interesting casting choices. But for me, Ed Harris kind of took the cake in that one. Next up, um, a movie I was not overly uh, excited about uh, back from 2013, Lee Daniels' The Butler. And there were a myriad of interesting casting choices in this film as well. But again, focusing here on Alan Rickman as Ronald Reagan. Now, uh, he did not do a terrible job, but it's just the way in which Alan Rickman kind of represented his take on the character um, was just kind of, I don't want to say off-putting, but I just never once really bought into the fact that I was looking at Ronald Reagan. I, I just didn't. I just didn't see it. I, all I kept seeing was Alan Rickman, right? And not and not Alan Rickman in any particular role or any kind of typecasting. Because again, we've already, as we covered in our three squared a, a few weeks back, uh, back on the 29th, actually, episode 164, we covered you know our favorite Alan Rickman roles. So it's not that he couldn't do a good job. It's just that in this particular instance, I just don't think the gravitas of Ronald Reagan matched up with the gravitas of Alan Rickman, the actor. And it just, it just showed it. And say what you will about Jane Fonda or, or, or Robin Williams or any of that kind of stuff in their casting and everything. But I just, I just didn't buy it. Um, it's not that he did a poor job. I just didn't buy it. Finally, for me, from 1995, going way back, Anthony Hopkins as Richard Nixon. Folks, contact lenses doth not make a, a man, okay? You, you can't just put colored contact lenses in and expect people to buy your behavior uh, and buy your character. Um... <sighs> Anthony Hopkins is, again, as much of an amazing actor as he is, it just was not the right choice. And for me, this one just, I, I wanted to like Nixon. I really appreciated what the film Nixon was trying to do in showing not just the complexities of the office at the time and what was going on in the world as opposed to the way Nixon was handling it, but also, the way Nixon was as a human was pretty well captured in the story. But the way Hopkins presented the character, and if I'm not, it's, uh, I believe it was Oliver Stone, if I remember correctly. Um, and it just, it, it just didn't, it just wasn't believable. It just simply wasn't believable. So despite a great story and, a period rife for excellent filmmaking potential, just this characterization was horrible. It was horrible. And it's so weird to watch Hannibal Lecter 
coming very closely off the heels of Silence of the Lambs, and you're trying to see him say, I'm not a crook. It doesn't work. It's bad. It's bad, and it's weird. It is the strangest casting choice I could think of. So, again, I, I didn't mean to stay political on all this. It just kind of happened to be how it worked out. Ed Harris is John McCain in 2012's Game Change. Alan Rickman is Ronald Reagan in Lee B- Daniels the Butler. And finally, Anthony Hopkins is Richard Nixon in Nixon from 1995. Oh, and of course, Lee Daniels the Butler was 2013. What do you got there, Tim? You mean Lee Butler's the Daniel? Sure, Lee Daniels the Butler. <laughs> Lee, exactly, Lee, that too. Lee, but, be, Lee the Butler the Daniel. Lee, Lee Butler's Lee Butler's the Daniel. <laughs> yes, that's the sequel. Oh, that'd be a great spoof. Lee Butler's yeah. the Daniel. Uh, okay, so my three, or my first strange casting choice for a real-life person comes to us from the year 1999, and the director who brought us the strange casting choice, or who made the strange casting choice, was the great Richard Attenborough, and the actor was Pierce Brosnan, and we actually covered this film some episodes ago, I can't remember exactly, but the movie is called Grey Owl, in which <laughs> in which Pierce Brosnan plays a Canadian fur trapper turned conservationist by the name of Archie Grey Owl. So he looks okay, so Pierce Brosnan looks the part. He looks like a native, but he doesn't sound quite convincing. He doesn't sound like a native, nor does he sound Canadian. And while you're watching the movie, especially during his long monologue, which if you go back to when we were talking about the ep- or talking about this movie, there's a scene where he's doing this long monologue about the beavers, about beaver dams, about the importance of beavers. And it's so unconvincing that you can't help but think naughty thoughts during the entire beaver monologue uh, it's it, it's amazing and that's kind of a sign right there to where you know you made a poor casting choice i mean pierce brosnan is trying he isn't god awful the movie isn't god awful it's just a couple of the wrong ingredients were put into the cake so it tastes a little bit or so it came out a little bit funky and that's pretty much Grey Owl. It's definitely worth checking out, though it's not so bad that it's good. If anything, just Google Pierce Brosnan Grey Owl Beaver Monologue, and you will not be unhappy after watching that. My second strange casting choice for a real-life person comes to us from the year 1956, and it was... Via the Dick Powell film The Conqueror, in which John Wayne, that's right, the Duke himself, portrayed Genghis Khan. Yes, that is utterly... I'm gonna give you the death by a thousand cuts, waha. (laughs) And that's right, we are talking about The Conqueror and Genghis Khan as in, quote, I am Temujin, barbarian, I fight, I love, I conquer dot 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 like a barbarian end quote because we all know anything about genghis khan was that not only was he proud to be a barbarian but he loves to fight just as much as he loves to conquer and love beautiful women like susan hayward 
I, I really don't know how to put my feelings towards this casting choice into words, so I'm going to read a little bit from this Guardian.com artic- article, The Conqueror Hollywood. Hey, hey Tim. Huh? To, I'm, I apologize. I was just curious. Are you sure this wasn't called, you know, uh, like, Gods of Gang? <laughs> gods of... <laughs> Never mind. Ah, uh, trying to make gods of Egypt joke, and I can't do it without laughing. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, read your article. The Conqueror, Hollywood gives Genghis Khan a kicking he won't forget, again from TheGuardian.com. Uh, and just this little blurb here, it starts off by saying, Genghis Khan founded the Mongol Empire in the 12th century. And I'm just going to read the blurb here about casting. The Conqueror was written for Marlon Brando, which is not that much better than John Wayne, but Marlon Brando dodged the movie thanks to his contract with another studio. Meanwhile, John Wayne was at the peak of his career. He made The Searchers soon afterwards, and producer Howard Hughes was inclined to give him whatever he wanted. What he wanted, apparently, was to be a 12th century Mongolian warlord. Well, who doesn't? This is how one of the worst casting decisions of all time was made, and John Wayne became Genghis Khan. Again, Genghis Khan, for those of you who still don't know, <laughs> founded the Mongol Empire in the 12th century, and he was portrayed in The Conqueror by John fucking Wayne. And believe it or not, I'm uh, jumping to Wikipedia right here. Um, it, Despite the film's reputation as a flop, it was... The 11th most successful film at the North American box office in 1956, earning $4.5 million. And a lot of people, especially now, the movie doesn't age well for a number of things, but especially because it's John Wayne as Genghis fucking Khan. But it's considered as one of the 100 most enjoyably bad movies ever made. So at least that's something that's good slash entertaining. I mean, it doesn't cause, I mean, it causes a little bit of a uproar now, but it was the fifties. There were a lot of poor decisions when it came to Hollywood films. And this just happens to be one of the worst. And I guess you could argue that they got what they had coming to them. Matt, uh, I don't know if you wanted to mention about the toxic. Oh (laughs) yeah. uh, Basically, uh, nearly everybody who starred in that movie, including John Wayne, ultimately died of cancer because the desert filming that they did was where they had done the nuclear testing back in the 40s for the atomic bomb. Yeah, from the same Guardian.com article, it says that by 1980, 91 of the 220 cast and crew had been diagnosed with cancer. 46 had then died of it, including John Wayne and director Dick Powell. Though journalists have often linked the radiation exposure and the disease, a 41% diagnosis rate and 20% death rate from cancer is about the same as in the general U.S. population. Uh, end quote. And it, and at the end of the article, it says the overall verdict of The Conqueror, it proves beyond doubt that Genghis Khan, Cowboys, and Atom Bombs do not mix. In My third and final strange casting choice for a real-life person, which actually kind of worked out, uh, was James Cagney's portrayal of George M. Cohen in Yankee Doodle Dandy from 1942. Again, I'm going to read from a uh, turnerclassicmovie.com article. 
Yankee Doodle Dandy, the musical biography of patriotic song and dance man George M. Cohen, also rates as the favorite film of its star, James Cagney. Although he now seems the only logical choice, Cagney would have missed out on his big chance if a deal between Cohen and MGM to make a film to be called The Four Cohens hadn't fizzled out. Covering the years when Cohen had toured with his father, mother, and sister, the movie would have starred Mickey Rooney as the young Cohen. The deal collapsed after studio head Louis B. Mayer refused to allow Cohen the right to final cut on the proposed film. The next movie mogul to show an interest in the project was Samuel Goldwyn, who had a commitment to make a film starring Fred Astaire. When Astaire refused the role of Cohen as not right for him, the rights were picked up by Warner Brothers, who cast resident star Cagney in the role with Cohen's blessings. Cagney, in particular, was eager to play Cohan because he was, at the time, suspected of being a communist sympathizer due to his union activities, he was president of the Screen Actors Guild, and because of his open support of the New Deal. He wanted to show his patriotism on screen, and the George M. Cohan story was the perfect vehicle to do this. End all quotes there. Absolutely fascinating. These very uh, behind-the-scenes tidbits for both uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy and The Conqueror here. Uh, Everybody who knew of James Cagney up to that point knew him as a gangster, you know. You dirty rat. Put your hands up, you dirty rat. The classic gangster is James Cagney. And him being a song and dance man where he's actually tap dancing and singing throughout a rather long film was unbelievable at the time. But now, like the article mentioned, you can't envision anybody else portraying that character. So to me, at least, this was a very good choice. So my three strange casting choices for real-life people, again, were Pierce Brosnan in the 1999 film Grey Owl, John Wayne in the 1956 film The Conqueror, again, he played Genghis Khan, and then finally James Cagney in the 1942 film Yankee Doodle Dandy. All right, so that concludes our three squared. Yes, and next week we're going to be having another bonus segment. That's right, bitches, they're back. Uh, We're doing Did It Age Well? And we're going to be covering the 1985 Harrison Ford thriller Witness. All right, so that's what we're doing next week. And... Without further ado, I believe we are up to the movies, are we not, sir? That we are. All right, folks, here we go. It's the movies. This week's movies that we're covering are 2015's The Witch, Gods of Egypt, and Learning to Drive. Hey, Diana, remember when we said we'd cover that, like, next week? (laughs) That may have been 13 or 14 weeks late. Sorry about that. But it's being covered! Yay! So, where do you want to start there, Tim? How about we begin with Learning to Drive? Yes! Yes, let's. We will not keep Diana in suspense any longer uh right it's um all right learning to drive 2014 american comedy films directed by isabel quakeset and um it's based 
on actually it's actually based on a New Yorker article by Katha Pollitt. Uh the film stars Patricia Clarkson and Ben Kingsley, uh, with other smaller roles going to the likes of Jake Weber and Grace Goomer. Um all right, so what we have here is a young lady. Well, uh, I say young lady. I use the term colloquially. But basically, Patricia Clarkson plays Wendy Shields. She is a woman who has hit kind of a, her own midlife crisis by way of her husband divorcing her. And one of the ways she has decided is to take control of her life that is spiraling out of control is by doing something she's never done, which is learning to drive. Um, her driving instructor is a Sikh man by the name of Darwin Singh Tour, and he is played by Ben Kingsley. And of course, culture clash, culture shock, and yet they have something to offer one another. But it's not love. Kind of. Anyway, so that's the movie in a nutshell. Um, this is a movie that is really, really difficult not to like. Okay, um, it's got excellent actors and actresses in uh, actor and actress in, in the lead roles. Um, it is a very heartwarming story, but those two things don't necessarily build a phenomenal movie either. And so you have a movie that's really just kind of a by-the-numbers um, midlife comedy-ish kind of film. Like, it, it tries to be funny, and it doesn't really try too hard, but it's just something that at this point feels kind of rote. And the thing is, is that there are some meaty parts to the movie, but the problem is is that the meaty parts don't actually happen until about the last 20 minutes of the movie. And those meaty parts really need to be in the second 20 minutes of the movie so that you have something that will carry you into the finale, right? You have the setup of the first 20 minutes. We get to the meat of the problem in the next 20 minutes, and then you can spend the back end of the movie, the, you could spend that back half of the movie at that point with working those things out. But you just get these really cool things. For example, there's a young lady uh, who enters... Uh, Darwin's life but at, towards the end of the film and you see how she relates to things and it's like man that's pretty cool but then but then nothing and that's kind of the whole movie it's predictable until it's not but by the time it's not it's too late it's still nice it's still likable and somewhat heartwarming but it's just by this point in time, kind of blasé. I do give this one three stars. I mean, it just it just pulls right in at the three stars, and that's going to be based on the strength of the performances of Patricia Clarkson and Ben Kingsley. Um, but it's a little rote. It's by the numbers, and um, could have been worse, for sure, but likable enough. Three stars. What do you got there, Tim? When Patricia Clarkson and Ben Kingsley are not together on screen, I think that is when the movie isn't as strong. 
it's interesting watching the characters become developed over time. Just certain aspects of their characters felt a little too forced. For example, uh, Ben Kingsley's character, the whole being from the Middle East and being different from everybody, characterization of him, and seeing how people are outright horrible to him on the street while he is giving her driving lessons like those two uh, young white kids who hit the car and start yelling slurs at him, you know, saying really nasty things about being a terrorist and whatnot. Just stuff like that felt a little too forced and not real. When Patricia Clarkson and Ben Kingsley are together, the relationship is great. I love the dialogue. Uh, the, the performances shine and the chemistry between the two of them, fantastic. And that's really when they're together when their struggles kind of resonates more with the audience because they're learning from each other. And I love that part of the movie. It is because, you know, that you have two people from two totally different backgrounds with two totally different experiences, but they teach each other something. And that always makes for a, a good movie. And I just think that's what this movie is. It's, it's a good movie. The only issue I had was the busy work for the characters to do whenever they're not together in a scene for patricia clarkson it was her insecurities they felt a little you know oh we've kind of seen this before and it was just a little bit more a little too blase i suppose i do know that maybe i am not the specific demographic for this movie i can definitely see why people thoroughly enjoy this movie i i have respect for this movie especially back when it first came out before diana even recommended us to watch it on NPR, uh, it might have been Fresh Air or something, but Patricia Clarkson was on there and being interviewed for this movie. And she was talking about how she was able to connect with the character, with being older, sex when you're older, especially when you're single, and all the different complications that you go through with that, finding a partner, with being with a boyfriend, with doing all that stuff. And so she was going going into, in, in, uh, going more depth into the character and some of her personal experiences, and that is why I've kind of concluded that I'm just not the targeted audience. So I can understand why people really like this movie. And a lot of people really do like it. But for me, I give this one three stars as well. Three out of five. I think it's good. Well, all right, sir. Where do you want to go from here? How about The Vich? All right. Definitely the winner of the week for me. Um, which... I guess at this point would be obvious, right? Uh, uh, let's see here. So, yes, which um, the on-screen subtitle is A New England Folktale. Uh, 2015 horror film, and it's written and directed by Robert Eggers and is also his directorial debut. The film stars Anna Taylor-Joy, Ralph uh, Ineson, Kate Dickey, Harvey Scrimshaw, Ellie Granger, and Lucas Dawson. And this film... Um, is about a family in the uh, in the 1600s who have basically been excommunicated. They're kicked out of a plantation and go on to make their own way in the wilderness, as it were. And they are plagued by evil things happening, all wrapped around a an initial contact by a witch 
Now, if you've seen the trailer to this film, you'll note that uh, one of the things that kind of kicks off the scariness of the film is the disappearance of the baby. Well, um, that's not much of a lead-up. That's actually the kickoff, which is kind of cool because it's something that happens very early in the film and allows you to kind of build from there. Now, this movie is not a jump scare movie and thank lord thank the lord for that there is a god there are literally no jump scares in this film um you could debate that there might be one but it's so obviously set up that for me i didn't i can't i can't truly consider it a jump scare the two thing the the two things that i found most surprising about this was one the level of acting um in harvey scrimshaw who plays caleb which is the oldest uh which is the oldest brother of thomason who's played by uh, anya taylor joy and she does just a um she does a great job as well in this film, but he is just, man, just so, so amazing. And it's so subtle at first. And then, um, by the end of the movie it's just, holy crap. This kid was like, where the hell was this kid when they were casting room? Well, I mean, okay. He's too old for that, but still, um, just the level of acting blew me away. The writing also is absolutely astounding because they actually use period English. So it's all these and thous and dusts and everything that was spoken in New England in the late 17th century. I'm sorry, early to mid 17th century, actually. And... But it's not like if you go in thinking, oh, my God, it's going to be like Shakespeare. No, it's not. It's it's very easy to understand. And the other thing that is really so wonderful about this is that every single play on where people get scared of the occult that was like super popularized in the late 70s and early 80s. um, You see like the absolute genesis of all of these scary occult things. And it comes from these folk tales and and the stuff that was written about and pulled from history. Some of the some of the dialogue was actually pulled from some of the, some historical documents of the day and trials and stuff. And you see just exactly how much these Puritans uh, or separatists, as they were known, literally lived and died by the Bible. Every single thing revolved around their relationship with God. And you think it's hokey and you think it's supposed and, and you think it's like this you know, this artifice to create tension and just be like, oh look at the religious nut jobs. No, no, no. This is why hysteria like the Salem witch trials that ultimately occurred later on happened. Because of the way these people 
walk through their lives. So when the dialogue hits and you see how these people are, are interacting with one another and you just get absorbed by it, it's amazing. And then the tension builds and builds and it, and I would say probably about 40 minutes in, it fucking doesn't let go. It, it just doesn't let go. You are sitting there and like just tense the whole time. So phenomenal, phenomenal job. The downsides though, there's two really big downsides. One is the music. Now, clearly it's just score, but the movie tries way, way too hard to be scary when it doesn't need to be. And that only, but it, to its credit, it only does it for about the first 10, 10, 12 minutes. After that, it seems to kind of find its rhythm and groove and it actually matches up to the script and lets the story pace out on its own. And then the, and then the ambiance and everything is intact. But it totally destroys everything that it's trying to set up when it's like this with all this violin stuff that they're trying to do right at the beginning of the film. And how does that go again? Well, fuck it. Just rewind it and listen to it again. And that's how it goes. Um, and, and it really kind of irked me. But as I said, it's 10 minutes in and it stops. So take that for what you will. The other thing is, is that by the time the film actually reaches its ultimate climax, um, I, I had a hard time trying to reconcile why decisions get made um, by Thomason, again, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, um, that she then follows through upon. Um, because it gets a little bit convoluted as the in the last, say, in the last, say, 12 minutes of the film. And... Because it's just not, it's just the movie, again, is so gripping, it's not letting you go, and you're just so tense trying to understand all the crap, and it's just building and building, and it just keeps happening, and you're like, oh my god, what's going to happen next? Which are all good things, but by trying to steer the film to its end, it's, you're, you're kind of sitting there going, but wait a minute, is this what was supposed to happen all along? Is this... Um, was this by accident or design or did the writers just kind of run out of a way to make the ending make sense and then just kind of let it carry? Now, the ending in and of itself, especially the last mm, minute and a half, still really good. But between that 12-minute mark to the end and that minute, so you got about a good 10, 11-minute section there, you're just kind of going, but why did it add up that way? It still ends amazingly for me, and it's still a really worthwhile experience, but those two things really kind of like jack up the score a bit. Overall, do go see this movie. 4.25, holy shit, watch it. Take it away, Tim. So every good thing you've said about the movie, I wholeheartedly agree. Stellar acting by by everybody. There's a lot of depth to the characters, though I think I could have used a little bit more of a backstory as to why they were leaving the community. I think that would have helped out more on an emotional level, as well as maybe understanding the father a little bit more. 
But what you were provided is a very effective film as a whole. And the movie itself is a ride. And this is actually my biggest complaint about the movie. And I apologize for not saying more good things about it, but I just don't want to, re- I don't want to rehash everything that, uh, that Matt said. But the movie grabs a hold of you from the beginning, from the master shot of where this family is going to build their home with the creepy violin so you know something's you know happening up until right when the main story kind of kicks off and when you get to meet the witch and the reasoning why you are meeting the witch finally and, and all the things that you see. It's amazing. So right then the movie grabs you and you're on this ride. But unfortunately, the movie doesn't take you to any new places than that. You know, it, it kind of stalls out. That is not necessarily a bad thing. But I think that's what really could have propelled that movie more so in the entertainment department, for example. So yeah, it just doesn't take you any place new by the time you reach the ending. And new, when I say new, I mean as in a new experience, a new feeling, which again, I think would have made the film uh, a little bit more entertaining throughout And really, it just left me wanting more. You know, you're teased the witch, you're shown the inner workings of the witch just a little bit, but then you really don't see anything quite like that later on. Maybe it was a budget issue, I don't know. But it's one of those things in film where, and and this is something that I I definitely agree, Uh, and actually I first learned this, uh, not really first learned this, but I first kind of had a taste of this with the movie The Brothers Grimm. Uh, in the trailers and in some scenes, I remember the Brothers Grimm, Matt Damon and Heath Ledger, their character is being attacked by this giant tree. And so it's a giant CGI tree and it's throwing them about. They have to battle this tree. And then when the movie came out and I saw the movie, I found out, well, that giant tree wasn't in the movie. It was supposed to be a part, a part of the first scene or something like that. Well, it turns out later on, Terry Gilliam got rid of that scene because... Nothing else in the movie could have trumped that one scene. That was gonna that was gonna be the most expensive shot or the most expensive segment in the entire movie was the CGI tree. So he got rid of it because he knew nothing else could match it. And of course, in the witch, they can't get rid of the witch or this particular set of scenes or segments that I'm referencing here because they are absolutely effective and they most definitely set the tone for the rest of the film. But there's not really anything else to that caliber. That, to me, that is what I found disturbing. All the critics are saying this movie is deeply disturbing. This is true horror. Really, the only disturbing part of the movie, like I've been saying, is that one segment, is that one scene. Nothing else quite matches that in terms of gestalt. And so that is really my only complaint I think it's still a very good movie, and people should definitely go and check it out. This is more of a drama, I think, than a horror film. I think it would have been more interesting if they marketed this film more as a drama than a horror. I think in some some ways it could have been an even more pleasant surprise. I still did enjoy it. However, I cannot say I I really, really liked it, so I'm going to land on 3.75 out of 5. Thoroughly enjoyed it, and I do look forward to seeing this one again. Cool. All right. Well, then, that leaves us with Gods of Egypt. All right. 
Now, this is going to be very important. Uh, well, actually, first, let me let me start with here. 2016 fantasy film, okay, and it's featuring ancient Egyptian deities. Um, it uh, was directed by Alex Proyas. Of, uh, you, maybe you might be a fan or know he was the guy who directed Dark City. He directed iRobot, things that are going to be coming into play for next week. But you'll understand later. Um, stars Nicolaj Coster Waldu, Brenton Thwaites, Chadwick Boseman, uh, Elodie Young, Courtney Eaton, Rufus Sewell, Gerard Butler, and Butler. <laughs> Just can't get around that, can I? Gerard Butler and Jeffrey Rush. <clears throat> all right. Now, this movie, okay, for all of its, um, for all of the flack that this movie got about its casting decisions, um, this movie takes place in an alternate reality version of Egypt. Okay, so for just for the sake of argument, they do have a legitimate out for the casting decisions that they made, regardless of whether or not you want to agree with them. Whatever, neither here nor there for the purposes of this discussion. Um. The movie starts off by explaining that before the histories were written, the gods, you, you know, had their own realms that they had created, and they created man. And they so loved their creation that they decided to come and be among their mortal creations. And so you have this kind of like version of the Nile and um, and and everything of where the, the pyramids were and all this kind of stuff, but it has absolutely no basis in reality. As a matter of fact, it borrows while it is Egyptian deities, it also kind of borrows heavily from uh, Greek mythology to a certain extent, um, along with other conventions that were used just for the telling of the movie. Now, um. And this is actually the story of two brothers, um, <clears throat> Osiris and, um, what's his name? Not, uh, and Set, okay? They're given dominion by their dad, Ra, and Osiris gets the Nile River Valley and Set gets the desert. So, Osiris wants to turn his, uh, kingdom over to Horus. Set is like, nah, you know what? I don't think my nephew should get it. I think I should get it. And he kills his brother. Uh, so Set kills his brother, um, Osiris. And now we have the plot, right? Oh, and on top of which, he blinds Horus. It goes into something later on. But it was necessary for him to blind Horus. Uh, we then have... Um, this uh we have this then subplot with mortals and this this thief dude who has his girlfriend and everything and uh he wants to give her a good life but he can't they end up being slaves and he decides that in order to get his woman a better life he needs to he is convinced by his said girlfriend to help uh Horace get his eyes back and defeat Set so that's kind of your setup for the movie. Now, um, the 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 movie is heavy, heavy, heavy duty CGI. 
And it had to be simply because of the subject matter and the presentation of the film, as well as the things that the story was trying to tell. There was just no way that they could do this without it being CGI. I think, honestly, though, it should have just been completely CGI'd, um, you know, a la Pixar or whatever, just for, you know, sake of example. Because the mixing of such heavy, heavy, heavy CGI with live action... And even the live action part is technically also CGI'd because the gods are physically um, larger than their mortal counterparts. So when Horus and um, Beck, I think his name is, uh, are standing next to each other. Yeah, when when Horus and Beck, played by Breton Thwaites, are standing next to each other, Horus is way taller than Beck. Okay, Beck's an average-sized guy. Horace is, you know, like almost twice his size. And all the gods are like that. So even when you've got two real actors standing next to each other or trying to interact, it looks very poorly staged. Like they watched The Hobbit and then said, I can do that. N- no, no, they can't. Now... I mentioned Alex Proyas and Dark City and Alex Proyas also having done iRobot. And there's a reason why. Not because these movies are any better or any worse or anything like that. But for the record, I was not really a super big fan of Dark City. I don't think it's a terrible movie by any stretch of imagination. Um, It's a decent flick. But I never liked iRobot either. This movie, the only way I can describe this movie is a likable train wreck of godlike proportions. If you can just give up on the idea of this being a good movie, you can just kind of sit back and relax and enjoy the guilty pleasure. So, um, and I won't say that this is a popcorn movie, Johnny, but I will say that... um, it can be a fun movie when you just laugh at the bad and understand that the movie's not going to get any better and just kind of let the CGI happen. Um, that doesn't make this in any way, shape, or form a good movie, but it does get it out of hate territory. I will say that. It did, it did make it out of the hate territory. The story is not a bad story in and of itself because it's a very inventive story and I liked the idea of what it was trying to do in terms of having a new way, not necessarily to create a franchise per se, although I'm sure that was you know, definitely something that was in the works if they could have made it work out that way. But it's just something that you in this particular fashion, you've never really seen before. So I applaud the idea of the originality. Um, the thing is, though, is that even with really very decent to stellar actors being used here, it just seems like they missed the mark entirely on the characterizations they were trying to portray. And I, and I know that that's partly uh, through the story, and that's partly because of the direction, but 
you're not given when your whole world is blue screen that direction is all you have to work on. You've got your characterization that you come up from, come up with from the script, but your direction is all you have to work on. And it's pretty clear that for the most part, it's kind of hard to be in the same room to do some of this stuff. So, yeah. I just this movie gets 2.25 for me. Um it's not really that great of a film. Like I said, if you can give up on it being any kind of a good movie and just relax and let it happen. It can be fun, but that doesn't make it good. 2.25. Bring us home there, Tim. I was looking forward to seeing this movie despite all the negative buzz and criticism because I thoroughly enjoy uh, or enjoyed Alex Poyas' previous works. Not as much. I, I thought iRobot was a good sci-fi movie. Uh, especially looking back on it now, where it came out with like in 2002, 2003, something like that. I think it holds up pretty well now, for the most part. But Dark City is one of my all-time favorites. I thought the movie Knowing, which he made in 2008-ish with Nicolas Cage, is a awfully damn good sci-fi film. The guy has chops. He also did The Crow. So, I mean, The Crow is beloved by people, and that's another really good movie. But my all-time favorite is Dark City. And while watching Gods of Egypt, I kind of I kind of found a few similarities between what I liked from his previous films and the things that I liked with this movie. And it's that Alex Poyas is a damn good storyteller. He comes up with good ideas. And like what Matt was saying about the script being inventive... It is a very inventive script. The story is a good story. The characters are good characters. They're likable characters. They're they're not entirely the same type of good guy, bad guy, or anti-heroes that you would be used to seeing. The progression of the characters I liked as well. It's just maybe poor acting choices or poor maybe poor dialogue, for example, for especially the the street rat guy character the main mortal guy whatever his name is for the most part everything else kind of sort of worked the movie does work in in an enjoyably intriguing way i guess (laughs) when it's not taking itself too seriously and unfortunately it begins to take itself too seriously At the end of the first half of the film, once the journey is well underway and the journey is still going on and they have to go through the the sandstorm, the CGI, blue screen, green screen, sandstorm, that's really when the movie kind of fell apart and became slightly tedious than a guilty pleasure. That, to me, is when the CGI looked its absolute worst, Yeah, the movie is chock full of green screens and blue screens and what have you, but it worked for this type of movie. The colors, the grandiose feeling and level that the movie was on, it needed all of that CGI and glitz and computer-generated glamour. But the fight scenes, including the CGI, for about, I would say about 75, 75% of the time, the fight scenes were pretty awesome looking. Like the whole battle uh, with the two of them, with Horus and uh, the mortal kid uh, battling the two snake people, or the two uh, women on the on the snakes, the 
monster snakes, the giant snakes or whatever. That was a really cool scene and well done. It looked really good. And same thing with the Sphinx when they go into the temple and and the God of Wisdom has to has to solve these riddles against the Sphinx. I thought the Sphinx was badass. And also the contrast between the people, the mortal, the gods, and the Sphinx looked really good as well. But then again, you have the sandstorm, when they're trapped in a sandstorm, and none of the sand is sticking to none of the characters. When Gerard Butler is flying around on his carriage being pulled by these giant hornets... (laughs) That didn't look quite good. And they come in for a crash landing and then he jumps off and he fights or stabs people or does something. It just doesn't look that good. And that's really where the movie falters for me. Again, it's inventive, but there's just a lot of aspects to it. Whether it be some of the, the acting, the dialogue, or the bad CGI. I cannot give this a solid three-star rating. So I am going to land on 2.5 out of 5. So I'm dead in the center. It kind of, I mean, it bums me out that people are so harsh on Alex Proyas for this movie. Because what Matt will talk about next week with, with one of his news articles is that everybody, once once the whitewashing thing came out, everybody jumped on the gun of labeling this movie as being another example of Hollywood whitewashing. And that's it's not really the case with this type of movie. This is like a ty- the type of movie that, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's different. You know, it's kind of like what Matt was talking about. It's just different. And granted, the movie is not a great film, but I think Alex Proyas does deserve at least a little bit of recognition for some of the stuff he did manage to, him and him and his crew did manage to pull off here. So 2.5 out of 5, Gods of Egypt for me. Cool. All right. Well, uh, that does conclude the movies for this week. Next week's movies are going to be The Duke of Burgundy and Tangerine, both of which are available via Netflix, as well as 99 Homes, which is VOD and Blu-ray, for those of you who like to play at home. And without further ado, I think it's time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can also follow me, this is Matt on Twitter. At nitwit12345, you can even climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter, because that's how I roll, if that is your heart's desire. Also, don't forget, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Patricia Clarkson, I get to say this. I always try to approach character first and foremost viscerally. And take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week.
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>